Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. It's going to read a few verses. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And when they'd fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful King we've been worshiping. Lord Jesus, you wonderful Lord, we, we magnify you. We're thrilled to be in the great congregation with all our focus on you, the Lord of glory. And Lord, we do pray right now, Father, that the Holy Spirit might rest upon us. Come, Holy Spirit. Tune us in to hear your voice. Let your Spirit do us good. Help us to hear you in our hearts, in our minds, in our wills, in our imagination. Captivate us by your word, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, some would say that the church at Antioch was a model church. And uh, Simon Walker was saying up here yesterday how he felt, hey, our church is to be an Antioch church. And you often hear people say, hey, we'd love to be an Antioch church. And really, it was a superb church. It was perhaps the most wonderful model church in the New Testament. Away from that Jerusalem base, with all its heavy kind of historic Judaism, the temple there and so on, here people had come away into what was the third largest city in the empire. And there, it says, they were first called Christians at Antioch. It was a great breakthrough place. And I just want to work through these opening verses of chapter 13 where it describes what that church was like. And, and we've come to love the church. I know for myself, when I got saved, it was like you found a personal savior, which I thought, wow, can anybody have a personal savior? This is wonderful. And you could do your personal evangelism and your personal devotions, and everything was kind of locked into me and God. And then later, as I was growing in God and got filled with the Spirit and met more and more people, there came a kind of almost a moment where I suddenly saw the church. God loves the church. And the church began to be a passion in my heart. And here in these few verses, you get some of the features, I think, that were so key to the kind of church God wants us to build. So let's just see what it says, verse, word by word, really. There were in the church at Antioch, Prophets. Okay, that's the first thing you see. There were prophets there. That's one of the marks of this glorious New Testament church. Now, it's possible as a Christian to think, oh, prophets are in the Old Testament. I mean, Elijah and Isaiah and Samuel, you know, the prophets are in the Old Testament. Now we're in the church. We're in the church age. You know, we have committees and deacons and democracy. I mean, that's church, isn't it? I mean, the Old Testament has prophets who have God and speaks. Now we're in church. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says 
we're in the age of the Spirit. Is, is that the age? It, 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 it's described as that period of time when the Spirit is more manifest now than He was before. So in the Old Testament, you may have had one key prophet for a whole generation. Maybe Elijah, maybe Samuel. If you wanted to hear the prophetic word, Samuel would do his national tour. He'd go around the nation. And you remember that Saul, having lost some donkeys, said, let's see if we can go and find the prophet. And they went and found the prophet. Have you got some word from God for us? And there's just kind of one prophet. In the New Testament, it's a new deal altogether. I'll pour my spirit on all flesh. It's not like the Old Testament was the time of professed prophecy when God spoke. No, no, no. And Jeremiah says, in the new covenant, I'll pour out my spirit upon them. And then Joel has this outstanding statement, in the last days, I'll pour my spirit on all flesh. There's going to be a, a phenomenal outpouring, and they will prophesy. The old men will dream dreams. The young men will see visions of their, uh, the, your sons and daughters. Will proph prophesying is going to become part of this age. This age, we're in the age of the Spirit, what Paul calls the dispensation of the Spirit. The Old Testament was very limited in terms of prophecy. This church was, a, it's an ordinary New Testament church, a wonderful one, and there were prophets there. Prophets, prophesying. Now, I would say there's probably three categories. It says in 1 Corinthians, all may prophesy. All may prophesy. It says in Acts 19, the Spirit fell upon a dozen new converts. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So prophesying was just very accessible. All may prophesy. All of us, any one of us may prophesy. Then elsewhere, it says about Philip, the evangelist, the only named evangelist in the New Testament, it says Philip had four daughters who prophesied. In other words, I guess they often prophesied. There are people probably in your church who often prophesy. And then there's another category, and if we'd read the previous chapter, we would have seen this, that, that Paul was in the home of Philip, where those four daughters used to live, and it says Agabus, the prophet, came and prophesied what would happen to Paul, that he would go bound. So there were, I would say, three categories. All may prophesy. There are some who tend to prophesy, and then there are prophets. The whole church is built on apostles and prophets. So prophesying is real part of the New Testament church. There were prophets. I know for myself, when I, I first got filled with the Spirit, I was attending a really super Baptist church, and, and hey, I am speaking in tongues. Hey, this is, God's right in here. This is a new experience altogether. And then a handful of us began to, and we had the joy of laying hands on one another. But the situation was such, there wasn't really a lot of room for this new phenomenon of the Spirit coming. At the beginning of the so-called charismatic movement, there's almost like two streams. There was some stream that said, well, this is just for you personally. And they called speaking in tongues your private prayer language. And it's kind of, that's just for you. And if you must, you can go to charismatic conferences and maybe there'll be charismatic groups out there. But for me, and I'm sure others, I thought, no, surely this is more fundamental. We need a new wineskin. Uh, we, we don't want to just add a bit of personal experience, but don't mess with the church, was what we were hearing in the early days. Look, this is church, don't mess with church. So you can have your personal experience or maybe do your charismatic stuff, but this is church. 
And I felt God was saying, no, no, church has to change. We need a new kind of church. It says in the Old Testament, they were wandering in the wilderness, it rained, there was a river, and it says this, they built the city round the river. And then it says they planted, and then they had a harvest. It's a kind of sequence, river, city, harvest. And we, we, we're not meant to build the church in the wilderness and go out occasionally to the river. You build the city round the river like great cities like London and Paris and many great world cities are built around rivers, you build the church round the presence of God, round the river where the Spirit is present. So the church is a place where the Holy Spirit is amazingly present. In the Old Testament, you had synagogues, especially when the people were scattered. You had the temple in Jerusalem, but they'd been scattered among the nations. And when they were scattered, they started building synagogues. Because, well, we couldn't get to the temple where the glory of God was, so we'll at least have a synagogue where we can have the sacred writings. And Jewish people would gather to the synagogues in the sacred writings and get these scrolls out. But the church isn't kind of a New Testament synagogue. It's a New Testament temple where the presence of the Spirit is felt. I know for me when I was in London, the church at Wendy and I visited while we were there for those three years, life-changing for me. I went to this meeting, and I'd never been in a meeting where the presence of God was so manifest. I'd been to a super church where the pastor, when he preached, oh, this is terrific preaching, but the rest of the meeting was just, well, wait till he preaches. Then I went to this church, and when we began to worship, the presence of God was remarkable, wonderful. I remember on my birthday one year, I, um, I, I had a birthday card. I had one of my favorite verses in it. I thought, oh, thank you, Jesus. On my birthday, one of my favorite verses. They didn't know it, but they wrote it in my birthday card. Thank you, Jesus. How wonderful. Then I tore off my, my calendar. Hey, there's a verse on the calendar. It's my other favorite verse. I thought, oh, God, this is amazing. I went to church, and it was a very, it was a very spontaneous kind of a church. And there uh, were never enough chairs for people, so some people sitting on the floor and communion's coming round, and I, and I received the plate from somebody, and there's a guy sitting on the floor here, so I step across him, and I'm halfway across him, about to pass the plate on, and this guy who's sitting on the floor with his eyes closed begins to prophesy. And he says, my son, and I'm standing, he doesn't know I'm standing there. <laughs> and he prophesies and quotes both the verses. And I'm thinking, oh God, you are in this place. That's church. Beloved, that's church. Where you say to oh God, you're in this place. And that's what it says about the church in Corinthians. It says that people will prophesy. You must covet to prophesy. Covet to. Ask God for a prophesying. Prophesying when God speaks to you. Not just little anecdotal things. You know, last week this happened to me. No, God speaks. And we think, oh, and, and, and it's just the un un unbeliever will come in and say, God is among you. Yeah, that's right. He is. He's amongst us. And he speaks to us. The whole history of New Frontiers wouldn't have happened without the prophetic that gave us shape and meaning and movement. It's always been, the prophetic has been with us. In the church there, there were prophets prophesying the presence of the Spirit fundamental to church life. Amen? That's what God wants. That's what we must covet. Don't drift into something less than that now. 
Okay, we're getting bigger and bigger, so who needs the Holy Spirit? We do. We do. So we must covet this manifestation of the Spirit's presence. There were prophets. This model church had prophets. Prophesying happened there. Is that happening for you still? I mean, prophesying, real, real kind of <gasps> prophesying. That's what we want. Then the next thing, it says there were teachers. Okay, teachers, prophesying and teaching. It's not that, oh, now we get prophesying, we don't need the Bible anymore because God's amongst us. No, no, teaching, we need teachers. It says about Jesus, he came teaching. It says at one point, seeing the crowds, he was moved with compassion. What's the next line? And he taught them many things. That's what they need. They need teaching. They need instruction. They need to know truth that sets them free. That's the sad thing. So many believers don't know truth. Some of us listened to Andrew going right through Romans yesterday. You're going, ah, it's Romans, beloved. It's the New Testament. Lots of us read the Gospels and the Psalms. New Testament teaching sets you free. And it was electric to hear Andrew go through Romans yesterday. All that great truth telling us who we are in Christ. We need truth. We need teaching. We need instruction. John Owen, the great Puritan, said the trouble with most Christians is not their lack of effort, but their lack of acquaintance with their privileges. Hosea put it simply, my people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. We need to know truth. And so we need teachers, people who can work at the Word. They set apart themselves to work at the Word, to unravel it, to set it out so we can hear it, so we can understand it comes with revelation, comes with insight. Their shepherding gift feeds the flock with truth. We want churches full of great teachers. Word of God coming. You remember when Jesus rose from the dead? He walks down the Emmaus Road, and there's two guys with their heads down. They said, we had hoped, we had hoped, but he's been crucified. We had hoped. I think if I was Jesus, I'd have thought, time for a resurrection appearance. You know, like Superman, rip that shirt off. Hey, I'm back. You know, that's what they need, an encounter with a risen Christ. What did Jesus do? It says, opening the Scriptures, starting from Moses, he took them on a Bible study right through the Old Testament. And for all the things concerning himself. And it says their hearts burned within them. Jesus made a choice. What do these people most need? What they most need is a Bible study. They most need to understand God's great purpose down through the ages. What God is doing. What it's all about. Oh, to know it. Especially to know this kind of meta-narrative, this big vision. God from the beginning, right from Moses and the prophets, right back from Abraham. This is what God's been doing. We're part of a great global purpose. And we need to be taught about it. So we're captivated. Not little verses here and there, but the whole word of God. That's what Jesus did. He taught them many things. Then later, they say, well, don't go away. Wait with us. Have supper with us. So he has supper with them. And he says, he broke bread. I said, it's the Lord. See, later, yeah, they did see him, but he made a choice on the Emmaus Road. What they most need is truth. So there were prophets. There were teachers with unchanging, authoritative, faith-building, life-changing truth. Truth that sets you free. 
Truth that says to you, you're not under law, you're under grace. So many believers don't even know it. They really don't know it. They think I'm still under law. They've not been taught. The teaching sets people free. They've not come to love the church. The teaching sets them free to love the church and realize in the midst of this fallen land and this fallen world, there's a glorious church that's going to live forever. We need to be taught. There were prophets. There were teachers. Then going through the list, it says this, Barnabas is the next word. Just working through the Bible study, Barnabas. Who's he? What's he doing there? Well, Barnabas had traveled to Antioch from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the apostles were there, the 12 apostles, and they felt, for reasons we don't necessarily know, they felt, no, we must stay here. We must establish this new community in Jerusalem. But hey, these people in Antioch have come to be believers through scattered Christians who had fled the persecution that flared up in Jerusalem. They just run for their lives. But as they ran, they're gossiping the gospel. And this great company came to believe in Jesus in this big city. And the news got back to Jerusalem. Hey, a church has spontaneously come to birth. The apostles said, no, we're meant to stay here. So Barnabas, who'd been with us from the beginning and knows the score, you go on our behalf. Well, Barnabas was a kind of apostolic delegate. He acted for the apostles. It's rather like the church of Samaria. The church came to birth because Philip the evangelist got there first. Philip went down, many were believing, signs and wonders were happening, the news got back to Jerusalem there, and they said, hey, we must send down Peter and John. They need some apostolic work. They need an apostle in there. Because, hey, these people are getting spontaneously saved, but do they know the truth? Do they know the apostolic truth? So they sent Peter and John came, who found, for instance, they'd not been baptized with the Spirit. Laid hands on the Spirit, came upon them, and they began to be what they needed, apostolic input. This church at Antioch, just being an independent, spontaneous church, in Bible terms, isn't quite enough. It needs an apostolic voice to come in. That's why Barnabas was there. Rather like later, Paul will say to Timothy, I'm, he'll say to, I'm sending Timothy. I can't come, but I'm sending Timothy. He knows my ways. To reach him, receive him like you'd receive me. So Barnabas is like an apostolic delegate. Churches need an apostle coming into them or an apostolic delegate, someone who comes on behalf of the apostle or the apostolic team. Churches are not meant to be independent. They're autonomous. They're a body of Christ. But they're not meant to stand alone. They need to be linked. And Barnabas could come in and say, now, you do know what the apostolic doctrine is, don't you? You do understand. It's apostolic foundations are important. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, I, as a wise master builder, and the Greek word is like our word architect. He said, that, he said this grace was given to him as a wise master builder. That was the grace that was given Paul. The grace that was given Philip was to be an evangelist. The grace that's given to some other people is to be a pastor teacher or a prophet. God gives different graces to people. This guy's a prophet. This guy's an evangelist. He's a pastor teacher. Apostle, it's not like you go to Bible college and the new grades, you heard the new grades, the GCA, GCSA grades. If you get one, you're an apostle. 
Two, they're prophets. Three, you know, pastors, evangelists. Four, pastors and teachers. No, No, it's not like that. He gave some this gift. He gave some that gift. And it's not all meant to be in one guy. You know, there's the people and the clergyman. And the clergyman has to be an evangelist sometimes. He has to be a pastor, teacher. He's got to be a bit prophetic. He's great if he's evangelistic as well. This poor one guy. That's not the Bible way. This is the model church. And it, and it needs different gifts and different ministries. That's how we come to maturity. That's what we're trying to do in New Frontiers, in Commission. We're trying to build churches that have this balance, the prophetic, the teaching, the evangelistic, and they'll be gifted men and women who come through, full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit of God, not just techniques we've picked up, not the sort of thing you can pick up at Bible college. It's come down out of heaven. This is a Spirit-filled church. God wants Spirit-filled churches, not just people with their four-year, five-year plan and their clever whisk ideas. No, we need God. God was with these people. The Spirit was there. Great teaching was there. And an apostolic delegate had come to be with them to make sure, have you got the apostolic? You see, there were mysteries previously hidden. You won't find them in the Old Testament. Some people get very confused. Oh, well, it says here in the Old Testament. Paul says God has revealed to us apostles and prophets mysteries previously not known. And they're to do with who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. That now that we're in Christ, we were, we were, we were crucified with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. We're seated with him. This apostolic revelation, previously unknown, gives identity to the new people of God. We are a new creation. We're already tasting of the powers of the age to come. Tragically, so many believers, they don't really understand apostolic teaching that changes church life. It makes us a body, many members. We respect and honor each member, each gift. We know God's our Father. Sometimes you long to go among the churches and say, oh, get hold of these wonderful truths, this apostolic teaching that changes the kind of church we are. Barnabas was there. Next thing we see as you look through the list, it says Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Why does it say all this? Who are these guys? Well, it's interesting what it says. Barnabas, what do we know about him? Well, yeah, apostolic delegate, but also he's a Cypriot, comes from Cyprus. If you had time to read all the passage, you'd see he comes from Cyprus. That's probably why on their first missionary journey, they went to Cyprus. He's got links there. He's got contacts there. They went to Cyprus. He was a Cypriot. Second one, Simeon called Niger. John Stott says in his commentary, almost certainly a black African, a black African. Lucius of Cyrene, well, he is a black African. He's from Cyrene. He's a black African. Next one, Manean, who's brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. What does that mean? It means he went to school with a prince, Herod the Tetrarch. He's one of the three sons. He's, he went to, it's like, it's like someone in your church, or oh, which school did you go to? Oh, it was uh, 
I was at Eton with William and Harry. With William and Harry? Yeah, we were together. You were at school with them. Man, I love And you're, you're in our church? Yeah. You were with them. What, with Harry? Yeah, yeah, his friend of mine. What? This guy, he went, he was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He's on the eldership team. Who else? Saul, who's he? Well, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. What a gang. He said, this, these people led the church. You've got two black Africans, you've got a Cypriot, uh, you've got, a, you know, the guy who went to school with William or Harry, and a Hebrew of Hebrew. What, what, a, what a mess. They must have had some terrible times. <laughs> now, this is, beloved, this is one of the wonders of this glorious church. I mean, it's fun seeing an international, international band, isn't it? Oh, so wonderful. Dear friends from India, people from all over in a band together. Beloved, this eldership, this leadership team was an international team. That's why the Antioch church was so breathtaking, so incredible breakthrough. Because up until this time, an elder, well, he's going to be a Jewish elder. I mean, he's children of Abraham, got Abraham's blood in our veins. That's the, that's the roots of the whole thing. You know, it all goes back to Abraham. These guys don't, back, don't go back to anything except Jesus. What have they got in common? Jesus? Oh, yeah. They were first called Christians at Antioch. What else would you call them? We've got Jesus in common. It's Jesus who breaks down the barriers. So Paul can say these amazing things. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Circumcision is nothing, he says. It's incredible things. But new creation. You're a new creation. You guys are new creation. We're new creation. We're one in Christ. We're one in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There aren't any more. There's no more slave or free. That is, it's very hard for us to take on. The Roman church, they reckon, was at least 50% slaves. But there is no slave in Christ. What was a slave in those days? It was someone you owned. It was like breathing furniture. It's like, I owned him. I was going to throw him away. I was going to burn it. I was going to beat him up. No, he's your brother. Like that wonderful letter to Philemon. Onesimus, your runaway slave. He's come to Christ. Receive him back as a brother. As a brother? I was going to sell him. <laughs> no, he's your brother. Receive him like you'd receive me. Wow, the gospel. The gospel. What the gospel does. This wonderful new book about a church for the poor. What the gospel does in bringing us together. There's neither male nor female. The gospel set women free. It's amazing what God has done. You see, even Jesus modeled it. Obviously, they were all Jews in his 12. But you look at the 12, you find there's a zealot there. And you know what the zealots would do? The zealots... They're like terrorists. The terrorists, you know, Roman soldiers wouldn't walk alone through terrorist territory, zealot territory, because a zealot would jump over the wall, slit his throat, and run away. They were, they were terrorists, the zealots. And then they've got a tax collector. Matthew, what's the tax collector? With a tax collector, he sold his soul to the Romans. You want taxes off our people? 
I'll get your taxes for you. So okay, I'll go and get your taxes. Give me your taxes. Yeah, you work, yeah, I work for the Romans. You work for the Romans? Yeah, give me your taxes. And there's Jesus with his 12. You know, there's the little nice house meeting with Jesus and the 12. And on this side, there's a zealot who kill a Roman. And on this side, there's a tax collector who sold his soul to the Romans. And it's like, what are you doing here? Well, I'm in love with Jesus, to put it briefly. And so am I. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one who unites us from all our diverse backgrounds, all our different upbringing, our culture, rich and poor, slave and free, intellectual and not so intellectual. What's our common ground? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. That's why worship is so important. We get our view on Jesus. We find him. We're not trying to work, hey, let's try Monopoly. Perhaps we can make friends. It's Jesus who's phenomenally changed our identity. We find our oneness in him. Then it says this, as we rush to a close here, they were worshiping, right? This is a great leadership team. They're worshiping. I hope your leadership team worships. I've been in leadership long enough to know. It's so easy to say, hey, it's a long agenda tonight, guys. We've got a lot to get through. Uh, John, will you say the prayer, please? Oh, God, please bless us. Thank you. Let's get on with it. I found this. If you worship, agendas kind of shrink. Let's worship. He's always worthy of worship. He's the reason we gather. Whose agenda is this? Whose church is this? Let's let everything flow from this throne, this glorious throne. These are great leaders. They're worshiping. They're worshiping. You still worshiping as a leadership team? Oh, let me appeal to you. Let's worship. They were worshiping, even fasting. And the Spirit said, separate me, Paul and Barnabas. We don't have time for that. I think we may get there later in the conference. Separate. They're caught up with world mission. They're caught up with world mission. They're going to go again. They're going to go again, like you guys do. I've so enjoyed already being here, having meals with different ones, beginning to hear their stories. Oh, we're going again. We've heard this. Oh, they're going. They're starting again. That's what commission's all about. We're living under this great commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Go and make disciples. That's, that's our manifesto. That's, that's, what we're, that's who we are. We're a people under authority who have said to us, go and make disciples disciples. What did they do? Instinctively, they went and planted churches. That wasn't disobedience. That was fulfilling the commission. Go and make disciples. That's what happens in local churches. We're made into disciples. We disciple one another. We have good shepherds, and we do pray for one another. I hear loads were filled with the Spirit last night. People praying for one another, encourage one another, Exhort one another. Don't bite one another. There's all sorts of one another verses. We disciple one another. The church is a body of disciples living under this great commission. And there comes a time sometimes when God says, separate me these. We're going to start again. We're looking to the next town. Maybe we're looking to the next nation. This is a glorious church, the Antioch church, a great, great model church. May God make us all model churches. Amen.